share with you some of the keys about how to live out of time. Because prophetic people often are more focused on the future than they are on the present. And if you don't learn how to live in your present with a view towards the future, then you end up living in fantasy rather than in destiny. And so I just want to share some of those principles with you today. We're just going to start with a, a very simple look at Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 3, which is so familiar for prophetic people again. But I never mind going to the foundational, simple things. You know, sometimes we try so hard to be profound. Sometimes we try so hard to say something new or different. And ultimately, if it's new, it's probably not true. So here we are in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. And though it linger, wait for it, because it will certainly come and it will not delay. Now this scripture has so many paradoxes in it. Has anybody noticed? Though it linger, it will not wait. It's like, hello? Wait for it, because it is going to come and it's not going to linger. And you're going, what are you talking about? One of us is confused. Either the writer or the listener, somebody is confused here. But there's three things about the nature of the prophetic promise here that we want to address. And the first one is this, that the prophetic speaks of the end rather than the means. Now that's very basic. But it says, for the vision or the oracle or the revelation, that Hebrew word means all those things, okay? It means a prophetic promise, a dream, a revelation, an oracle, or a vision awaits an appointed time and it speaks of the end. And so we need to realize that what we see often prophetically is the end, not the means to get there. Here's the deal about this aspect of revelation and of the prophetic, is that you have to be as committed to the process as you are to the promise. Many people want to be committed to the prophetic promise, but they are not in agreement with the prophetic process that God's taking them to, to reach that end. And I'll tell you what, if you're not in an agreement with the process God's taking you through to reach that end, you can prolong the coming of the promise. And so as prophetic people, one of the things we have to learn to do is how to embrace the process that leads to the end that we see. You cannot just embrace the promise. You've got to also embrace the process. The second thing is this, that the prophetic must often be contended for. It says, though it linger, wait for it. And the word linger in the Hebrew is maha, which means to question to hesitate, to be reluctant, to delay. Now, it's speaking about the prophetic promise or the prophetic revelation. It's, when it says it lingers, it's basically insinuating that there's going to be questions. And there's going to be hesitations. And there's going to be reluctance concerning the fulfillment of that promise. Now, come on. How many of you ever had... A word. You knew it was a word from God. You knew it was a promise from God. But then you came up into some questions. You came up into some hesitancy. You came up into some reluctance. 
you came up into some battle concerning the fulfillment of that promise. And when it says that though it linger, it's not just saying that it's taking a while coming. It's also telling us that there's going to be questions and reluctance and hesitation and all those things are part of the natural test that comes to you in the realm of the prophetic. But it says, though it linger, wait for it. And this is the part that I'm saying must be contended for because the word wait here is not the usual word that is used or translated as wait. The word is kaka, which means to root or entrench to adhere through the idea of piercing, to long, to wait, and to tarry. And so what happens is when those questions come, when that hesitancy comes, when that reluctance comes, you have to learn how to entrench yourself in that Word. You have to learn how to root yourself and dig yourself in to the promise of that Word and not let go of it. And that's exactly what Abraham did. Even though there was reluctance, even though there was questions, even though there was hesitations, it said he hoped against hope. And that's what we're talking about here. When a word has to be contended for, many times it's a matter of hoping against hope. When it looks like everything is going the opposite direction of that promise or of that word, it's only proof that that word is really going to come to pass. There we go. Come on. And see, again, we have to learn how to make these things that normally affect us as trials and warfare to actually become prophetic testimonies of the fact that it is going to happen. And you begin to receive confirmation from those things instead of hesitation from those things. And I'm not talking about what Chris said the other day of every time I step out, something bad is going to happen. I do not believe in that. I don't believe that that is a value you should have. And many people give the enemy a right to retaliate within their life by that belief system. They actually open the door to him and say, okay, I'm going to take a step, so now hit me with your best shot. You know, I, I do not believe in that at all. Am I saying that that never happens? No, sometimes that happens, but that is not a value I hold that the enemy has a right of retaliation in my life because the angels of the Lord encamp around those who fear Him and no weapon formed against me will prosper and every tongue that rises up in judgment will fall. Now, if that doesn't apply to the devil, then it doesn't apply to most of my enemies. And so, he does not just naturally have a right of retaliation. And you can't live that way. You can't live with the value. Will the situation be tested? Will the promise be tested? Yes, it can be tested. Many times God is allowing those tests to develop in you the character that is needed to step into the fullness of that promise. But see, it's about inheritance and possession. It's not about hard times and trials. Do you understand? That's the, that's the important part. That's the essence of what I want you to get is when we face those tests, when we face those trials, it's because God wants us to gain some treasure, some authority, some picture of intimacy with Him, some picture of favor with Him, something about our relationship that He wants us to carry in to that promise. I don't know if you've ever played those video games where you like have to go through mazes and stuff, and there's things that you can pick up along the way. 
But there's also shortcuts you can take. But if you take the shortcut and you get to the enemy and you didn't pick up that bow and arrow or that potion or that whatever along the way, then you actually can't defeat that enemy. You can fight him as many times as you want. But you didn't pick up the right stuff along the way that would cause you to defeat that enemy, open that door and retain the victory. And so embracing the process is all about being willing to pick up the stuff along the way that is going to ensure and reinforce your victory against the enemy you're going to face at the end. Because you're destined for victory. You're destined to overcome. You're destined for possession of that inheritance and of that promise. So you know you're going there. You just have to be willing to pick up the stuff along the way. And if you try and take the shortcuts, then you might have to fight the battle without some of the stuff that you need. And then here's the third thing. So first of all, we said that the nature of the prophetic promise is that it speaks of the end, not the means. Secondly, that it must be contended for. And thirdly, that it often seems slow in coming. Now, often seems slow in coming. Again, I don't want people to get a value system that says every prophetic promise is going to take years to be fulfilled. As a matter of fact, I have prophetic people that speak into my life where they speak it one week and it happens the next week. They're my favorite prophetic people, as a matter of fact. He got anything for me this week. (laughs) Yeah, it's wonderful, you know. But many of the major things that God speaks into your life actually are awaiting an appointed time. And they speak of an end. And even if they're not a long time in coming, they seem like they're a long time in coming. Or am I the only one in the room that feels that way? And so it often speaks, or often it seems like it's slow in coming. So it says, though it linger, it will certainly come and will not delay. And again, the word delay in the Hebrew means to loiter or procrastinate, to be late or to stay there. And I just want you to know that in the perfect timing of God, it's as wrong to be early as it is to be late. It's as wrong to be early as it is to be late. Most of the things that God has promised us have to do with birthing. And the last thing you want to do is give birth premature. And so it's as wrong to be early as it is to be late for God. He knows the best time to bring forth something for the fullness of life and health to your body. And so we have to learn how to live out of time. Okay? I want to go back to the statement now that you have your notes that's in the second paragraph. The prophetic office and even the prophetic lifestyle. Let's address both these issues today. The prophetic office and prophetic lifestyle is a call to living out of time. Often the prophetic dream, revelation, oracle, or vision is a greater reality to the prophetic person than current events. And a commitment to the prophetic office is a commitment to learning how to live out of time. Paul said this of his own life in 1 Corinthians 15.8. Now he's making reference to the fact that as an apostle, he's one who saw Jesus but he actually saw him after he had died and been resurrected. And so he said of himself, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. And so Paul knew what it was like to 
feel almost like he was living in the wrong time period. How many of you ever felt like you were living in the wrong time period? Like you'd be better suited to a different period of history or a different period of the future or something like that. And you just feel like anachronistically you're out of time. Now, let me, let me go deeper into what an anachronism is. Because Romania is a perfect example, I think. Uh, when you're driving down a road in Romania you are as likely to see someone in leather clothes in a BMW convertible as you are all dressed in gray in a goat cart or an ox cart. I mean, on the same road, right next to each other, you will see the most modern thing that the world has to offer and something that looks 100 or 200 years old all on the same road. And you continually see it as you go along. And then you'll see a very modern building, and then you'll see something that's hand-carved all out of wood, the entire thing, and pots hanging from the trees, and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, those things are anachronistically not synced together. Do you understand? They don't look like they should appear in the same nation. It's like, okay, this would be okay in a third world country, and this would be okay in a first world country, but what's going on here? That both of them are existing side by side. That's you. <laughs> Prophetically, that's you. Because you keep seeing these things that are out here, but you still have to live here. And so this is what anachronistic living is all about. And 1 Corinthians 13.9 says... For we know in part and we prophesy in part. So we're always dealing with a partial picture. And no matter how much you know or see, you only know a part. I was telling you about my son the other day. My son, my oldest, is an amazing kid. When he was in second grade, he tested post-high school. And so they brought home, you know those little tests you do and you fill out all this stuff? They brought it home to show you like if your kid is equal to the second grade or not, is he a little ahead, is he a little behind? Well, his came back and it showed that he could pass the high school equivalency exam in second grade. And we went, oh Jesus, what are we going to do? <laughs> and so he got in a gifted and talented thing and, and started college, actually going to the college campus when he was 14. And so last year, when he was 17, he graduated from college. And it's really a bummer as parents because we'll be arguing with him about something and he'll bring up just this brilliant thing I've never even thought of. And I'll go, well, just do it because I said. That's right. Okay, I just have to play the old man card. It's all I can do is I'm the parent, you know, you're going to do it because I said. And then I go away going, I've never thought of that before. I'm like, that was brilliant. It's really a drag. And so it has actually produced kind of a cynicism in his life that we're trying to work through. Because can you imagine sitting in a class as a child and be smarter than the person who's up there speaking? Or actually know that they're sharing things that are incorrect. And then be a preacher's kid besides. So that you've grown up in the church and heard thousands of sermons. And so every time somebody's speaking, you've got this mind ticking away. And so one of the things we go over with Michael all the time is... Michael, we know in part, and we prophesy in part. And no matter how much you know, it's still just a part. I mean, you may know a lot, but it's still just a part. And you're never dealing with the whole picture. And guys, this is part of what we have to do as prophetic people. No matter how much you know, 
No matter how much you see, we know in part and we prophesy in part. And that's part of why we need teams so bad. Because even as prophetic people, you're always dealing with partial revelation. And you've got to have team around you to help you process it. So prophetic people must learn how to live out of time. They are an anachronism. And the reality of future events overshadow the present reality. And this presents some dangers for prophetic people. And this is one, I'm sharing this from personal experience right here. Okay, the first one is how we see other people. And here's two of the extremes that happen to prophetic people. First of all, we only see people's potential and we start dealing with them according to what they will be rather than what they presently are. And so you start putting people in leadership roles because what you see on them is this incredible leadership gift and you start, okay, so here you go, we're going to put you in this office and then they keep failing you and disappointing you because you're seeing the end of what they will be, not what they are right now. And you've got to learn how to live in this reality even though you're seen in that reality. And if you're not careful, you will continually set people up to fail rather than succeed. How many have seen that happen in, in your own life, in your own ministry? And you thought, can I trust anybody? I mean, did you ever have this happen? It's like, can I trust? How come everybody keeps failing at everything I give them to do? And it's because you're seeing their potential. You're seeing what they can be rather than what they are. And all you have to do is adjust your scene. And we'll talk more about that when we get to the next page of notes. But here's one of the other faults of how we see people. We only see people sin and we judge people by the cloud of oppression rather than the cloud of favor, blessing and inheritance that hangs over them. What keeps you from receiving all that God has for you? And what I'm speaking about here is actually a story that a friend of mine tells. Again, uh, Graham Cook, some of you are familiar with him, is based out of our church. And Graham tells the story about how he was in a service, and it was a prophetic conference, and one of the prophets, again a well-known guy, called out a man and began to expose all the sin that was over that man's life in this prophetic conference. And the guy just broke down and... and uh, snuck out to the lobby and was trying to escape, you know, trying to get away. Well, Graham had made his way to the back of the auditorium and into the foyer and he caught that guy and he grabbed him by the arm and he said, hey, are you leaving? And he said, yeah, I'm getting out of here. And he said, well, I, I, I have a word I want to share with you. And he goes, I don't want any more blanking words. And he goes, oh, that. No, that's not what I'm talking about. He said, when I was sitting on the platform... He said, I saw such a cloud of favor, blessing, and inheritance over your life that I was jealous for what God has for you. And he said, I know what that other guy was talking about. He goes, but what I want to ask you is, is there anything you see in your life that would be holding back that cloud of favor, inheritance, and blessing from invading your life? And the guy totally broke. And he began to share the struggles that he was going through. Began to share the battle that he was in. And folks, you have a choice whether you're going to see the cloud of inheritance, favor, and blessing that's over people's lives. Or you're going to see the garment of sin, the tattered garment that they're in, and which one you're going to speak to. And so again, this comes out of the core values that Chris has been speaking about all this week. I do want to make this statement. What God sees in men does not keep him from anointing them or calling them. You've always got to remember that. What God saw in you 
didn't keep Him from calling you, from growing you, from developing you, from anointing you. And so, if we're not careful, we can either treat people only according to their potential or we can treat people only according to the junk we see on their life. And we actually can't deal with either one. We've got to start with where they are right now and say, how do we help them grow into that prophetic potential that I see over their life? And we've got to adjust our scene, not to deal with their past or their future exclusively, but to deal with who they are, where they are, and what they are right now. And that's anachronistic. Here's the second thing that we deal with in this whole realm. And that's how we see ourselves Many prophetic people live in the agony of unrealized destiny. Therefore, they misrepresent the life and love that flows from the heart of God. And you guys, I'm sorry, but this is kind of a pet peeve of mine. Two things I can't stand is depressed intercessors and depressed prophets. I just, I just can't handle it. Okay? People that are walking around under the burden of God as if that makes them more spiritual. Listen, as far as I'm concerned, if you call yourself an intercessor and you're carrying something, you are not an intercessor at all because you haven't learned how to lay it at the feet of Jesus. If you pick up somebody's burden but have no skill to lay it at the feet of Jesus, you have no right to call yourself an intercessor. And in the same way, if your prophetic gifting makes you depressed, how are you ever going to represent the heart of God? The greatest violation in the prophetic is to bring the Word of God without the heart of God. It's exactly what Jonah did. He said, 40 days and you're going to be destroyed unless you repent. And he forgot the basic law of the prophetic that God will always supersede even those words and even those promises by the representation of His divine nature. That He's slow to wrath, He's slow to anger, He's abounding in mercy and loving kindness, and He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. And so if you bring the word of judgment and don't include the character and nature of God as in, unless you repent then you've brought the Word of God without the heart of God and in the end, that Word may not prove true. Because if God has to be true to something, He's going to be true to who He is. Who He is. And so prophetically, we have to represent not just the Word of God, but the heart of God. And so as prophetic people, if you're walking around in depression and all the agony of unfulfilled destiny because you keep seeing these things out in the future and none of them are coming to pass in your life and that creates agony and discord in you, then you're misrepresenting who God is by how you're living and how you're carrying yourself. Alright? You've got to represent the life, the love, and the peace that is in the person of Jesus Christ. Or, I'll tell you what, what Chris was talking about in the last session of man's favor opening the door for you, that ain't never going to happen. People are not going to open the door to somebody that's walking around in depression, confusion, and despair. They can get that anywhere. Elijah was convinced he was the only one left. Oh God, I just want to die. I have served you faithfully and I'm the only one in my nation. And I'm going, hello? 
What just happened at Mount Carmel when all the people jumped up and said, Jehovah is God, Jehovah is God, and then they killed all the false prophets. I mean, this is right after that. I'm like, dude, you are having a serious breakdown here. And then God even said to him, he said, I have reserved 7,000 that have not bowed their knee to the spirit of this age. And then Obadiah had hidden 100 prophets in a cave. This is all in 1 Kings 18 to 19. And I'll tell you what, one of the enemy's tricks against you is isolation. And when you are living out of time and when you're seeing something that nobody else sees, you can feel very lonely and isolated. Don't live there. Do you hear what I'm saying? Don't allow yourself to live in that place of, I'm the only one who sees it. I'm the only one who's hearing it. Because I guarantee you there's other people that are hearing it. You just haven't, you haven't connected with them yet. And you might be repelling them by your personality. It's just the thought. Jonah wanted to die because he felt like God had not backed up the prophetic word. Jeremiah was commanded not to be fearful of those who would totally reject his word and attack him personally. How'd you like that for a call? I love this quote from Philip Brooks, and my statement here is, Refuse to live miserable. But Philip Brooks said, Distrust your religion unless it is cheerful. Unless it turns every act and deed to music and exalts and attempts to catch the harmony of the new life. I know, I wish I'd said it. (laughs) Distrust your religion unless it's cheerful. Oh, man. That just so works. And so, if your prophetic gifting is making you depressed, you have an adjustment to make. You have a scratch in your lenses. And you need to make an adjustment of your core values and you need to learn how to live anachronistically. That you're seeing something out there in the future. And the scripture does say that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so we don't put our hope in that thing. We put our hope in the Lord. See, that's the adjustment we have to make. We don't put our hope in that function, in that destiny, in that promise that we see, but we put our hope in the character and nature of God that will never fail us and never let us down. And so you don't have to be depressed. (laughs) Somebody's getting a breakthrough here. Thirdly, how it affects our marriage. It's interesting the different combinations I see as I travel around because sometimes you'll get into a pastoral situation where one of the persons is really prophetic and one of the persons is really practical or pragmatic. Okay, when I say pragmatic, I mean practical here. Like, here they are as a, as a ministry couple. Usually they're in the leadership and one of them's really prophetic, one of them's really practical. And the prophetic person is kind of going, can't you see what's going on? Don't you have any vision? Don't you have any revelation? What's wrong with you? Like, can't you see where we're heading? Can't you see what God's doing? And the practical, pragmatic person is going, but can't you see what needs to be done right now? I mean, can't you see that the sheep are all scattered and don't know what you're talking about and where you're going? It's like, you know, what are you going to do here? What are you seeing? What are you going to do? What are you seeing? You know, and there's like this tension that can go on if we don't learn how to live out of time. 
And so prophetically, I'm going to speak to this in a minute, so I won't give it away right now, but prophetically, you've got to learn how to live in the now while seeing the future. And then when they're both prophetic, that's really interesting. I was just at a church recently. So don't check my calendar, okay? But I was just at a church recently where both of the, of the leaders, the senior leaders, husband and wife, are prophetic. And it was so interesting because when you talk to them about the church, they're talking about all this stuff as if it already exists. And I'm looking and there's like 20 people in this church. (laughs) And I'm like thinking, you know, I, I, because I'm also prophetic, I see exactly what you see. But do you see this? I mean, you do have to do something about this. You do know that. And I want to say again, that it is as wrong to live in your future as it is to live in your past. No, you've got to learn this. You can't just say it's good. You've got to learn this. It's as wrong to live in your future as it is to live in your past. You deal with people all the time that are addicted to interpreting their present according to their past. Okay? Well, you also can't just live as if your future has already been fulfilled. It's as wrong to live in your future as it is in your past. And I'll tell you what, again, when you relate more to your future than you do to your present, that is not destiny, that is fantasy. You've got to get a hold of that, you guys. When you live more in your future than you do in your present, that is not destiny, that is fantasy. Your future is only a better picture in the context of your present. The prophet must also be practical. What's in your hand? So I wanna, we're going to turn the page here, and we're going to talk about how we see situations. And we're going to just do a little chart here of the pragmatic and the prophetic. And again, the pragmatic just means practical. I want to say this about Chris, but I want to precede it with the fact that I believe flattery is an absolute sin and abomination. I do. I do not practice flattery in any way. Don't believe in it. Believe it really grieves the heart of God. It's one of the things really that God hates. One of the, but one of the things I love about Chris is he is as pragmatic as he is prophetic. He sees stuff, but if it doesn't work, he doesn't care. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, this has to work. It's not good enough to see it. It's got to work. We've got to figure out how to flesh this out. We've got to figure out how to make this work. And Chris, I, I just love that about you. And I want to encourage all the people in here. If you're kind of in this anachronistic struggle that I'm talking about, where you feel like you were born in the wrong time, you feel like nobody sees what you see or, or is coming from where you're coming from, or you're always living in the struggle of what's in the future and never seems to be coming, just kind of through listing and serving and getting a hold of this, get an impartation of this blend of highly prophetic and highly practical. It's, it's a real gift to our lives today. And so pragmatic, first of all, they deal with facts and actual occurrences. Now, having said that, let me just say that fact is not the highest level of truth. You, you, you know this, okay? Fact is a level of truth. But it's not the highest level of truth. The highest level of truth is actually revelation. Or actually, if we wanted to go just a little bit further, the highest level of truth is the person of Jesus Christ. 
He didn't say he just spoke the truth. He is the truth. And so he obviously is the highest level. But right under that is revelation. And the revealed truth is actually higher than the uh, higher level of truth than the fact. And see, when people are in denial, they're denying that the facts are true. All right? And that's mental illness, leads to all kinds of breakdowns, leads to emotional disturbance, all that kind of stuff. I mean, the world is right when they accuse people of denial. Denial is an unhealthy thing. Denial is refusing to believe that the facts are true. So what is the higher level of truth that we live in? We see that the facts are true, but we know that there is a greater truth. And that's what God has said. Do you understand what I'm saying? Let me apply it to sickness. Okay? Someone who has been given a diagnosis of cancer and goes around saying, I don't have cancer, I don't have cancer, I don't have cancer. Well, yes, you do. As a matter of fact, you do. Okay? And just confessing that you don't have it is not going to cure you. It's not denying this level of truth. It's embracing this as a higher level of truth. And saying, yeah, I have cancer, but, but God is a healer. And He delights. He is Jehovah Rapha. And it's part of His divine nature to heal me. And then it's also part of the atonement for Him to heal me. That by His stripes we're healed. And, and that He's forgiven all my sins and cleansed all my diseases. And I mean, we could just go on and on about all the realms of revealed truth that are a higher level of truth than this fact down here. And so I don't encourage anyone to deny the facts. I encourage everyone to embrace the higher levels of truth. Is that clear? You understand what I'm talking about? Okay. And so the pragmatic person deals with facts and actual occurrences, but the prophetic person deals with impressions and potential occurrences. The pragmatic person is active rather than contemplative, and the prophetic person is highly contemplative before taking action. The pragmatic person studies events in historical phenomena to predict a practical outcome. In other words, they look to their past to interpret their future. The prophetic person studies events in light of revealed future to predict a potential outcome. And so they are living actually future to present rather than past to present. And that's the final category there. The pragmatic person also lives from their past to their present. The prophetic person lives from the future event. They see into the future, but are able to bring that into their present. And that's really our goal here, you guys, is learning how to get synced up with the world that's around you, to continue to see what is ahead, to continue to see what is beyond, and yet to equally see the reality of your present existence and the, and the present things that are going around you. So we're going to look at that a little closer in just a minute when we get down to dealing with the church specifically. But I also want to say that whether you're an optimist or a pessimist also affects your prophetic interpretation. And optimist and, and pessimist is not all like optimist is good and pessimist is bad. Because let me share some of the strengths of each one. First of all, an optimist is defined in the dictionary as dwell upon the most hopeful aspects of a situation. The, the uh, prophetic gifting is often on the uh, pessimist side as well, which dwell upon the most serious aspects of a situation. 
Not always the worst aspects, but sometimes just the most serious, okay? And so the prophetic optimist focuses on promise and destiny, whereas the prophetic pessimist sometimes focuses on sin and its consequences. Now, having said that, this is not out of harmony with the values that Chris has been sharing. Because what I'm talking about is there is a time to address hindrances, in a redemptive rather than a punitive manner. All right? And that's the whole key, is that if you're going to bring a corrective word or if you're going to bring anything like that and you've got the authority and the anointing to do that, which you must have, you've got the permission to enter into that place, then if you're going to bring the heart of God, it is always redemptive and not punitive. So whenever a word of correction, rebuke, or judgment comes, it is not even a judgment for the sake of punishment or a punitive action. It is always for the sake of redemption. It's like, can't you see that this truck is coming and it's going to hit you? And, and so get out of the way. It's about life. It's about hope. It's about destiny. It's not about the truck that's coming. And so again, even in the heart of one who sees those things, the heart of the Father is always redemptive, not punitive. And then the next thing under the prophetic optimist is they advance the church vision by pointing to the prophetic potential. And so this is how the prophetic person can work with the church and say, hey, I can see this happening within this body and within these leaders. And then the prophetic pessimist refines the church vision by exposing potential stumbling blocks. Now, Lance Walnew does this thing. How many of you have heard Lance or been exposed to his ministry? It's great. But he has this thing about the team you need to build around you. I can't think of the word right now, but it's, it's the letters care. You need a creative person. You need an advancer. You need a refiner. And you need an executor. So... Each one of you in your life, if you have a vision, you have a dream, you have something, and most prophetic people are the first one, they are the creator. They see things. They're entrepreneurial. They're they're visionary, okay? But the thing that you need in your team, you need someone around you that's an advancer. And an advancer is a strategist and a networker. They know how to bring the strategies together and the people together to fulfill that vision so that the vision becomes a plan. And then the third area is the area of the refiner. And the thing about the refiner is, I am on a team right now where my personality profile, if you know the DISC system, is I have an equal amount of D and an equal amount of I and almost nothing of C and S. And so I want to party and I want to be in control, okay? I want to... I want to do it now and I want to have fun doing it. Everyone on my team is either an S or a C. S means slow and steady and C means let's do it correct. The D just wants to do it done and the I just wants to do it fun. The C wants to do it correct and the S wants to pray about it a year or two before we do it. And so I'm in a team with all these guys that, are, that want to do it correct and want to be slow and steady in anything we do. And I'm like, let's go. Let's go. And I'll tell you what, 
When I first started and didn't understand these dynamics, I'd bring all these ideas and visions to the team, and they would just like have target practice. <laughs> just shooting down every idea I ever came up with. And I was just having a little pity party. I was getting kind of depressed and just going, does anyone else not see what I see? But see, that's my part of the team. And the truth is, I used to think that the refiners... Because many C's are refiners. They want to do it correct. I used to think that the refiners had no vision. As a matter of fact, my wife is a refiner. So like, I know that whenever I'm going to share an idea with her, I have got to really have it developed before I share it with her. I'm serious. I have to think this through. Because she's going to give me 12 reasons why that won't work. So I make sure I have 13 reasons why it will before I tell her. And so I used to think that refiners were just these depressed down people that loved shooting down my ideas and never really did anything themselves. I'm just being transparent here. Until the Lord began to show me that refiners are people who see stumbling blocks that I don't see. See, refiners are people that see into the process rather than just seeing the promise. They may not see what I see, but I need to see what they see. Do you understand? They see the stumbling blocks. They see the potential pitfalls. They see things that I am going to have to encounter if I don't listen to them. And so you need refiners on your team. Don't be afraid of people when you share an idea with you and they start telling you, well, you're going to have to do this, you're going to have to do that, and then the... Those people see something you don't see. And you need to listen to them. And you need to make them part of your life. You also need to be prepared before you share it with them. Yeah. Honestly, this whole vision that I'm doing right now where I'm working among these other nations, I developed it for a year and a half before I shared it with my team. I mean, I got with other I's and I got with other D's and I met with them and got all these ideas together and I put it on paper and we thought through everything we could think through before I even presented it to them. And they were kind of like, wow, you've really thought this thing through. Like, that's a new event for you, Dano. What I'm trying to share with you is this kind of prophetic gifting does see but their vision is about the potential stumbling blocks, not about the promise that's at the end. And if we'll look to them and listen to them, then we don't have to go through the same agony on the way to the promise. And so the prophetic optimist builds people by adding revelation. The prophetic pessimist builds people by removing limitations. You got that? One builds by adding revelation. One builds by removing limitations. Now, a mature prophet knows how to be both prophetic and practical. How to deal with people of process and not just people of promise. They are prophetic and pragmatic. They ask, what can we bring from our prophetic destiny into our present reality? And you guys, this is where I'm talking about right now. What can we do to team up with our local church when we see stuff out there in the future. And this is where you take your prophetic gifting and appropriate it to the present situation. You see that promise that's in the future. Well, don't just bring the promise to the team. 
Look at the team prophetically and help strategize, help advance the purpose or the cause and say, and this is what I see we can do to begin to move in that direction. Okay, do you see the difference? Because you're being awfully quiet and kind of funny. Did you like eat too much lunch and now you're checking out? I don't know. Let's look at the notes here. Maybe that'll help. Dealing with the church. First of all, direct your prophetic listening at the present as well as the future. That's what I just said. Here's some of the questions you can ask. What is God saying about the present? What do you see in the Spirit now that is setting the stage for the prophetic destiny? And so all I'm saying is that when you see that picture and that promise in the future, you also have to direct your hearing, direct your listening, direct your seeing to the present to help the team function to get to that place. Does that make sense to everybody? Secondly, practice strategic partnering with leadership. Ask what revelation of God will propel us towards that end. Ask what relational upgrades need to occur to prepare us for the next thing God is going to do. What action steps should we take now in light of what God is leading us to? And then, as much as possible, participate in current tasks even if they don't seem to be leading toward the destiny that you see. One of the things I love about, like I mentioned before, we have two definite office prophets on our staff that have written books and traveled all over the world and speak at conferences and all these kind of things. But one of the things I love about these guys is they serve the local body in just any area they can. It's not just about... You know, what I see out here. Man, they serve the vision right now and just say, hey, if there's anything I can help in, just let me know. And they are so practical in the present. Do you understand that if you're going to be part of a healthy team, you've got to practically serve in the present and not just speak about the future? Hello? Do you understand that? That's not a rhetorical question. I'm really asking, do you understand the value of that? I love that about our team. And then thirdly, adjust your focus and evaluation of the present. Focus on what's missing rather than what's wrong. Do you know that the principle of transformation is you'll never, you can always bring change by saying what's wrong, but you can never bring transformation by saying what's wrong. You can only bring transformation by asking what is missing. Because if you're only dealing what's wrong, you're just correcting problems and fixing the squeaky wheel. You're not really moving towards your prophetic destiny. But you have to ask not just what's wrong, you have to ask what's missing from our life, what's missing from our destiny, what's missing from what we need to move forward to what God has for us. That is the recipe for transformation rather than just change. So focus on those who are moving forward rather than on those who don't get it. Okay? So adjusting your focus is also about finding people that do see. It's about finding people of like heart that you can team up with and work with and, and pray with and be patient with in that timing issue. And then finally, focus on good things that are happening within the body. Don't just focus on how we're missing it. Just don't focus on how we're not, doesn't look like we're heading that direction. Focus on the good things that are happening in the body. Acknowledge them, affirm them, and give thanks for them. All right, let's take some questions about this whole issue 
of anachronistic living. First of all, let me ask, I'll ask a few questions, then I'll open it up for your questions, and then we'll make a transition here to the next thing. But uh, how many have found, as we were teaching this, that it cleared up an area of confusion for them personally? Just raise your hand and hold it up for a minute, because I just wanted to see. Praise God. That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay, and uh, how many right now are working with a team, or you're working with the staff, and uh, you have a real high value on that relationship in that situation. Okay, awesome. Because one thing I would say about my team that I get to work with is it's not just a functional relationship. These guys are my best friends. And when I watch Chris work with his team, he's working with his friends. Right. And he's working with his peers. And we put a really high value on the relationship and on the friendship. And that helps us not get all bent out of shape about the fun functional aspects. So I'd really encourage you in those things. Okay, what questions do we have? Do we have any questions we want to address? We'll just take a couple because we're going to leave the time at the end here today to, uh, to get into some of the others. So these three that are up right now will just be the three that we take, okay? You know, I'm really glad that, that you brought this point up because I wouldn't want anybody to think that when I say you can't be depressed... I'm not talking about you can't travail in the secret place. Do you understand? I'm just saying when you come out, leave it there. Alright? When you come out, leave it with the Lord. Don't carry it out of the secret place with you. So I'm not talking about uh, not travailing, not pressing through, not having some really heavy encounters in that secret place. That's an awesome thing and that's the proper place for that manifestation of fire. But if you take that fire out of the fireplace and set it anywhere else in the room, it's not helpful or constructive. Okay? So there is that going on, and it's very helpful, and I do encourage that. Second question back here. On the care um, team that you did, the creative, the advancer, the refiner, and the executor, I was kind of looking and at our leadership team yes. and kind of plugging people in there. Uh -huh. Could you explain the executor to me so I can plug somebody in there? <laughs> I forgot to say that, didn't I? Did. The executor is the doer. Okay? The executor is the activation person. They're the doer. And uh, again, this person can be misinterpreted as well because they usually don't have a lot of vision. They usually have a gift of helps or a gift of serving. And they're just like, I'm with you all the way. Just tell me what to do. And if you try and sit down with that person and brainstorm with them, they're going to get really bored and you're going to get really frustrated. The truth is, God has gifted them with an ability to activate a vision. They just want to ex execute the vision. They're like, let's don't talk about it, let's just do it, just tell me what to do. And you need those kind of people to fulfill a dream. So there's creators, there's advancers, there's refiners... And then there's executors, and they're the doers. And they're the ones who, like most of us that are apostolic and prophetic, we love starting stuff and hate finishing it. <laughs> and if you don't have activators to turn it over to, like when you're done, you know, I like go into these nations and, man, after three years, I'm just, I'm pretty much done. I, I've like set up leadership, we've shown them how to do it, we've trained them, all this kind of stuff. Now you do it. I love you. I bless you. I want to stay in relationship with you, but I don't want to do that work anymore. I'm, I've already moved on to another nation. You've got to have advancers, okay, and executors. It's a good question. And where was the third one? Right here. 
I know this is kind of extensive. I'm just going to say it all and let you answer how you want to, because this is how I wrote it down. Okay, you're scaring me. How did you become such a, <laughs> how did you become such a rad leader? Uh, because there's a lot to be aware of, and there, is there like a different timing for everyone in this? Because it seems to me like a lot of leaders miss all this really important stuff. Like prophetic people, they've been in ministry for 30 years, and they don't have an idea what you're talking about. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then how much experience... Um, in this kind of thing have you had before you've become as equipped as you are now to teach this and be well-rounded like so many of us need to be and so many pastors and stuff are like totally missing. Yeah, thanks for that. I really appreciate what you're saying in that and I would say that each one of us are really the product of the people that we've associated ourselves with and I've been blessed to be around mentors that are really high quality, high caliber people and I serve them way longer than most of my friends and peers. And uh, while people were trying to get me to start a church or trying to get me to launch out in something, the Lord just said, no, stay. Stay and serve. Stay and serve. And I just want to point to the fact that Elisha, as he was on the way to Elijah being caught up into the chariot of fire, three schools of the prophets stopped him and said, do you know that your master is going to be taken away today? They're still seeing him as Elijah's servant boy. And the ver 24 hours later, he is the prophet in the land. See what I'm saying? The schools of the prophets keep meeting him and saying, do you know that your master is going to be taken away today? And he's going, yeah, don't speak of it. And he goes on to the next city and they say it again. Yeah, don't speak of it. Next city, don't speak of it. They're still treating him like a servant boy. And 24 hours later, he's walking with the double portion of the big guy. And I personally do not believe the double portion is mystical. I believe the double portion is a matter of you serve somebody until their gifting, their anointing, their wisdom becomes part of your life. And at the same time, you pursue your own anointing and gifting and their portion plus your portion equals a double portion. It's that simple. So Elisha served Elijah until the point that everything that Elijah was about had become part of his life. But he also pursued his own destiny. And in that, he stepped into a double portion. So if I have anything to offer you today, it's only because I've been blessed to stay under the covering of wise men and women who I'm indebted to. So God bless you.